Will you please read with me Joshua 5, 13 through 15? Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now will you turn with me to Matthew 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Thank you very much, Yuri family. You may be seated, and Yuri's know you are much loved, one of the families that serves so faithfully behind the scenes. We thank you for the impact you've had on our church. Thank you very much. God bless you. So this Advent um, started by thinking about, as you, you move around, as I do, how do most people, when the you know, category of God comes up, notion of God comes up, I think they, they really think of just an idea. That God is the, the kind of thing where you just you hang your ethics on God. He might be useful in this area of life, but not really useful in this part of life. That he can be uh, quite compartmentalized. That there's certainly nothing personal about him, and, and maybe he's, he's unknowable at all. I think a lot of people have that uh, view. I remember once reading about a very um, a French intellectual by the name of Laplace, a very learned man, a contemporary with Napoleon. And uh, in, in conversation, God came up and he said, God, um, I have no need for that hypothesis. And I think a lot of people think of God like that. You know, uh, maybe for some people he's beneficial. Uh, you can mold him into the image that you want him to be so you can really do, in effect, uh, you know, the, the very thing that you want to do. Whatever it might be, that God is a category, he's an idea, he's a place for ethics. What's the problem with that? See, the problem with that is we don't have that luxury when it comes to Christmas. See, the great declaration at Christmas time is that God broke into the world uh, in the person of Jesus the Nazarene, that God uh, is calling a people to himself, that he's knowable. So again, the claim of the Christian, as is uh, sometimes misunderstood, is not that the personality of, um, of Jesus Christ began to exist 2,000 years ago. Rather, what we'd say is that there's never been a time uh, where the personality of the second person of the Trinity, um, there's never been a time where he hasn't existed. That God, as a, as a Trinitarian being, an eternal Trinitarian being, 
sent forth the second person of the Trinity, right? The son who's always been with him, sent him forth into history to take on flesh the man Jesus. So from now on, when we look to see, see Jesus, we say, oh, that's what God's like. We can relate to him, that he's calling to us. He says, you know, live for me, come to me. I, I, you, you can know me, you can be reconciled to me. And that's the great message of Christmas, that God is not an abstraction, that he's personal, that he's knowable. And that's why we sing the way we do. Even this morning, we sang the word Emmanuel. You know, you hear that many, many more times in the upcoming weeks. Well, what it means is God with us. He longs to be with his people. He made us to experience his love and his joy. And that from start to finish in the Bible, that he um, wants to be among us. And so we've been looking at that this Advent, uh, different ways where God comes upon his people. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, we talked about God appearing in fire that you go through the whole Bible, and God, there he is among the people, and he's manifested in fire. And the implication we drew from that, one of the implications was how God refines his people. That uh, God, when we face trials, that when we think about things uh, as we go forth in our world, that God is molding his people, he's molding his church into the likeness of Jesus as a refiner's fire. And you can see how very different those conceptions of God. Over here, God's just an idea. He's not really knowable. It's nothing to do with me. Verse the God of the Bible. Among the people, in his spirit, refining them, molding them, moving them towards him each and every day through the trials, through our thought life, through our interactions at every step of the way. So that's where we're kind of parking uh, this series, God appearing last week as a fire, this uh, week as a warrior. As a warrior. You say, well, what a, what a theme for Christmas, you know, <laughs> a military theme for Christ Christmas. But I hope you'll see at the end of this why this is so very important. God appearing as a warrior for his people and the implications for his church. Now, no better place to turn maybe than Joshua chapter 5, what was read uh, chapter 5 and verse 13. This is when Joshua and the Israelites are moving into Canaan. They're about to move into Jericho. And it's worth revisiting. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and Worshipped. That's very important. He worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, what do you do with that? We all know that God doesn't uh, occupy a space, right? He's not, uh, there's no fixity of location with God. God is spirit. And yet, just as there was last week, there's an instance of him appearing in a very real way among the people at a crucial moment. Now, this man, not only does he command the Lord's armies, but Joshua's response uh, tells us a lot. He worships. So you can study all the ancient Near Eastern religions you want. That word worship, you say it's something only gods get. Now, sometimes men get it, but those men get it when the people think they're a god. Like later when Caesar, people worship Caesar because they're, they're acknowledging him as a, a god, a false god nonetheless. The point is, in the ancient Near East, when a being is worshipped, it's because they're seen to be divine. Again, go a bit further, right? What happens? What does this uh, commander of the host say? He says, take off your sandals because this is a holy ground. So 
you, you kind of string all this together. You've got a, a man standing, commanding the armies of the Lord, who's clearly visible, who, who uh, the only response Joshua has is to worship and to acknowledge that this being is holy. Now, we call this a Christophany, that it's an appearance of the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation, right, before Christmas time. And this motif will run throughout the Bible, comes in a lot of places. You have these in the notes. If you get the Friday emails, you'll see Numbers 22, right? The angel of the Lord, remember the word angel means messenger, with the definite article. So the messenger of the Lord appears among the people with a sword in his hand. Or likewise, how many times in the Bible? Uh, God appears in a chariot. I remember a few weeks ago we were talking about Exodus and how many times the chariots of Egypt are brought up. That's because this is the great weapon of war uh, in the ancient Near East. This is your panzer in the 1940s. I mean, it's a great piece of, of uh, war machinery. And many times God appears to the people in a chariot. It's a, it's a vehicle of warfare. Also, you could think of the times. Maybe you've come across this. You say, what does that mean? When we, have you ever seen when we call him the Lord of hosts? You'll be reading a psalm or something, and they'll pray, you know, O Lord of hosts. You say, what does this mean, Lord of hosts? Well, the hosts are the armies. It's the angelic armies, the, the, the armies behind God. The, the point I'm trying to make is many times, just as last week we saw God appears to the people in fire, God, just as often, appears to the people as a warrior, as a figure who's doing battle, as a figure who's fighting. So three implications of this, and then you'll see what it has to do with Christmas. I know a little odd on the, uh, so far as the introduction goes, but here, here's what we'll do. We'll uh, look at God's appearing as a warrior, what that means for the nature of the battle we're in. Secondly, the power by which the faithful fight that battle. And lastly, the weapons of the battle. So we'll make those moves and see uh, how it relates to a church like ours. So firstly, God's routinely appearing among the people that is his people, as a warrior, reminds us that there's a very serious battle going on. So you woke up today, as I did, and maybe your first inclination was, is that I'm not. You're, you're a Christian, you say, I'm not really uh, in a war today. I'm not, you know, you think, you're, thank goodness we're not down in those trenches uh, like they were, uh, the boys were down in World War I, say nothing even close to that. I'm not in a very real war. And then you have the great declaration of Scripture, say, if you're a person who surrendered to Christ, you're in a very serious battle. So how many times God would say, I fight for the people. I'm fighting for my people. And if that's the case, what is the nature of the battle that we're in? Now, at times in uh, Christian history, this battle has been mistakenly taken as being earthly or territorial. Uh, you know the great example of this. Can't believe how many times this is brought up in everyday conversations. So what do you do? I'm a pastor. I say, well, how do you do that? What about those crusades? Say, crusades called by Clement V, 1095, a thousand years ago, but they, they cast a long shadow. Because what the Crusades were, right, called by an opulent medieval papacy, very complicated affairs. By the time you get to the Fourth Crusade, it's Christians sacking Christians for the business interests of Venice. Uh, they're a real mess. Uh, the point is, is that the Crusades, these expeditions for Christians to retake the Holy Lands, I mean, territorially, earthly, I think we all say, if you're biblically literate, you say, that clearly is not what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, that, that a Christian would take up arms and march to the Middle East and start to reoccupy little Oso. We want to retake this church and this church and this church and this land, and we need this state carved out here. Say, that is not the central thrust. That's not even what we'd say a distant thrust of what we think we're to be doing. Um, 
even now in American Christianity, you'll come across Christians who we'd say are Zionists. Uh, the word, uh, if you're a Zionist, you're very um, interested in the socio-political state of Israel. A lot of Christians disagree on this. But we, one thing we all agree on is to say that that, that is not the thrust of the church, uh, to, to, to be thinking about earthly territorial boundaries, uh, that is, uh, fighting militarily, is not something Christians can do. Uh, after all, what is Jesus but uh, the Prince of Peace? Um, if anything, you know that the history of Christian ethics is uh, saturated in things like pacifism and just war theory. In other words, the people that are really thinking deeply about the Bible realize that it never calls for a mandate to, more, to, to war, but rather it's the other question. That is, when can a Christian ever use his or her body to intervene? Uh, because the Bible, again, errs uh, so far uh, on the side of pacifism and loving one's enemies. So I think, I hope what we see is that when God appears among the people as a warrior that this is not a battle, uh, a physical military battle, as has been the case in odd scenarios in our history. Now, there's an objection here, as you're, you, you, know, you know Joshua well, don't you? You've been coming to Providence a long time. Hopefully, you know Joshua well. There's an objection here, and it's this. You say, well, yeah, but in, in the book of Joshua, God really is marching against real land. He really is going to take it to all these groups. What do we do with that? Do we worship a God who's just out to, you know, out to wipe, pe wipe people out? And here, I think, are a few responses. If you bear with me, I'm going to go a little bit of a, a sidebar here. But how do you answer that objection? Is God just bloodthirsty? Uh, is he all about pushing around small groups uh, as he did in the book of Joshua? Here are a few thoughts for you as this comes up in your world as I know it does mine. Firstly, when God moves against people like the Amalekites, or those who occupy Jericho, say God is acting consistently with what he said he'd always do. So the great narrative of the Bible, right, is that God made everything good. We ruined it in our selfishness and rebellion. And all those, then God inaugurates a game plan of redemption, and that message of redemption comes to the people to repent and follow God. So that's the whole narrative of the whole Bible. And what God says is all the people who ignore me, all the people who say, no thanks, God, will face my judgment. So you're reading this and finding these tribes coming and what they've done. They said, no thanks to God. They're doing things like child sacrifices, that they're walked far from God. They've ignored the witness of creation. They've ignored the witness of what he's done among the Israelites. And when you read this, what we have to see is God is actually acting consistently with how he said he'd always be, that I'm going to deal with human rebellion. So perspective number one. Secondly, and delicately here, that the kind of battles we read about in the Hebrew Bible in Joshua are on a very small scale. You know, sometimes you're reading and say, wow, this is a, a real bloodbath. Actually, these are, these are hill people. Um, they're, they're occupying the hills of Judea. I mean, you think of uh, a battle like Shiloh or Antietam. Way more casualties in one day at Shiloh than there would have been in the kind of battles described in Joshua. That these are, are small battles, and you're saying, well, every life's a life. Why would God do that? Here's the point. I, actually, I think... Uh, the description of God's judging these Judean hill people in Joshua is a kind of shot over the bow through all history of the people, right? It's saying, actually, this is a little, th this is a small-scale thing of the real truth. And that is that every person, every person is going to face the judgment of our maker. That we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus, right? And say, what are we bringing to the table? That God in his grace and kindness has given us this, say, this is serious business. If you 
turn your back and clench your fist and say no thanks to Jesus. All of us will stand before our judge. So what are we going to do about that? So again, point number one as you talk about this, God is acting consistently with his character to judge the people who've refused to come to him. Secondly, that this is a relatively small-scale judgment compared to the real judgment that we really ought to be worried about. That is that we're all going to face every person who's ever lived. Thirdly, really importantly now, no Jew or Christian who reads the Bible would ever get the impression that we're to do violence against another person. So you notice there are other faiths, right? You do just comparative religions, and you read the holy books, say there's a very clear injunction. If, if you're a follower of this God and this system, you do this. You go out and you, you fight a holy war, and this is what the holy war... Say you, you don't get that. Say there's a reason Jews and Christians don't do that. It's because, as I said a moment ago, the overarching theme of the Bible is one of passivism, of loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. We say, again, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that we're never told to do this, but rather that this was God acting in history to establish his people at a certain time, and we're not to go and do likewise. Fourth response to this objection, and the final one I'll bring up today, who are we in this narrative? So a lot of people will read it and say, kind of blush, say, this is a bit embarrassing. I mean, God moving in against these poor people in Jericho, and how do I defend this? Until you make the mental pivot to say, wait a second, I come into the world not on the side of God. I come into the world as, as the guy in Jericho. I come into the world as the outsider, clenching my fist at God, actually being... Uh, it would be just for God to judge me that way. That's who I am in the narrative. In other words, if you're not an ethnic Jew, as most of us are, like me, you're the person on the outside who God in his kindness and grace has given you the gift of repentance to come into his people. You see that? So we're not to, to be uh, puffing out our chests and see how our God pushes people around, but rather, God, I was once an outsider deserving your judgment uh, away from you, ignoring you, but you and your kindness have brought me in uh, through Jesus. All this to say, maybe the last five minutes, you're like, wow, this is a, you know, feels like a lecture. The point I'm trying to make is that when God appears among the people as a warrior in a chariot, that the nature of the battle is not earthly or territorial. At times in the Old Testament it was, but that is not what we do. That is not what the church does. Secondly, you might think, well, if the war is not territorial, that is, it's not, you know, armies marching, then is it political? And you might not be tempted to fight a physical war, but I think we are tempted to fight an ideological war, that we look upon our landscape, we're reading the news and things and say, wow, this is a real, um, there's a real confrontation here between the way a Christian thinks and the way a non-Christian thinks, and we're in a kind of cultural war, a, a real battle of ideas against non-Christians. The problem with that, if, if that's the nature of the war, then our solution ends up becoming using non-Christians in certain offices to usher in the kingdom of God. That you'll talk to Christians and say, well, if only we get the right laws passed. If only we can get the people in Washington doing a little bit more of this and a little bit less of this, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, this will once again be God's country. And you think about what's happening there is that the Christian then begins to think of using the, the unregenerated heart um, to bring about the kingdom of God. You say, that's Again, a real problem. Say, why is that the case? Because before we're Christians, the Bible would say we, we're blind and deaf. We're blind to the things of God. 
that for too long, I think American Christians, certainly in the last you know, five decades, decades, I think the church has made a huge mistake thinking that, expecting non-Christians to think and behave like Christians. Say, instead of fighting, say, well, I'm really, realize the, the Bible would say they're blinded by the God of this age. They, there's no way to open their eyes to, to the Lord Jesus, right? That's a supernatural act of God that we're not in a culture war. We're not in a political war. Washington is not the solution to our problems, but rather we're a, a small band of people trying to be faithful. So the battle, the battle is not earthly or territorial. It's not primarily political or ideological. Those, I think both of those, both foreign policy and uh, warfare and politics are a symptom of the real problem. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know, you know the, real, the real battle, don't you? That we know the real battle is spiritual. It's far more serious. It's far more serious than foreign policy. It's far more serious than even what's happening in Washington or Columbus, that the real battle is the corruption of the human heart. You remember what Paul writes... Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Say, friends, is that true? That my irritations every day are not with my colleagues, they're not with my family, they're not with my politicians, I can have issues with them, but that's not my real problem. That my real problem is the selfishness and corruption of every single human heart, starting with my own. And I say, this is, quite frankly, this is why people hate the Bible. This is why people hate the Bible, because they say, well, the problem is not all these cosmetic things out here, educational reform and political reform. The, the problem is the fact that given, given the opportunity, I'm going to look out for me rather than you. Given my, I'd rather look out for me than be accountable to God. That's the truth. That's the darkness that comes in on each one of us. Saying, if that's the case, there's one further move we need to make. I'm thankful that Jesus makes this so clear. That while it's easy for me to start to look at the problem in everybody else, that the battle that I have really needs to, to start here, right? That I should take my own sin a lot more serious than I take anybody else's sin. And uh, Jesus will say, yeah, you, you're really good at pointing out the speck of sawdust in other people's eye when you ignore the plank in your own eye, those kind, that kind of language, to say, I've got a real problem in my own heart that every day, uh, Gurnall, the great uh, Puritan who wrote The Christian in the Full Armor of God, I think is the title, he, he said there's a posture that every Christian has, and it's one of wrestling, that we wrestle against sin. We wrestle every single day to, to, use the, to, to mortify our flesh, right? Here it comes rising up in me again. Make a name for myself to go out to accumulate more stuff. Here it comes. No, you wrestle it and you fight it. That's the real battle. That there's a spiritual blanketing of darkness that comes into each one of our hearts. There's a wrestling that the Christian has. And God, as he appears as a warrior, reminds us the real battle is way more serious than all the stuff we read about in the Wall Street Journal. It's that we've turned our backs on God. We've gone our own way. There's a cumulative effect of this of centuries and centuries of each one of us going our own way, right? As Isaiah 53 says, that each of us have turned our own way. We're like lost sheep looking out for ourselves. There's a cumulative effect, and we find ourselves in a broken system and rebellion against God against, and the powers of darkness having their way among us. So bold heading number one, God's appearing as a warrior. 
reminds us, reminds his people that there's a serious battle going on and that the nature of that battle is primarily the spiritual forces in each of our lives that manifest themselves in areas like foreign policy and politics and warfare, that the real battle is in here, the corruption of the human heart. Okay, bold heading number one, or number two, I'm sorry. God's appearing as a warrior then reminds us uh, by what power we fight. So you say, how can... If there's a constant battle in our hearts, if I'm constantly wrestling against the powers of darkness and against selfishness, how in the world am I going to make it? Uh, what, what happens to a nation in constant warfare? Say some, we, have, we have some uh, military history enthusiasts in the congregation. Say so you know about a war of attrition. It's a very real thing. You say you just, you just keep wearing the other side down. Because you know, I mean, all history shows you're in a state of constant warfare. You're just not going to survive. It's, it's, it's a way it's going to bleed you dry, bleed you of resources, bleed you of morale. There's a whole military. You, you can't be in a state of constant warfare, not as a nation, not as a people. How about as an individual? Say you wake up, say you, you ever looked at the, the biology of the, the so-called fight or flight uh, what the body does when you're in fight or flight, say, okay, here comes the stress, and you feel it in your neck, and your body begins to carry it around. Say, nobody can exist in a state of constant conflict or constant fighting. So how do the people of God do this? You see the moves we've made? We're in a serious spiritual battle. It's deep within us against the powers of darkness. It doesn't escape us, this side of heaven, that we wrestle daily, we mortify our flesh daily. How do we fight when we're in constant warfare? Say, that's then the breakthrough of the glorious truth, right, of God appearing in Jesus. Because we learn that God will supply his people, supply his people with the strength that we need to conquer the powers of darkness in our own lives. You know, where this is said maybe most memorably is in the David and Goliath story, First Samuel 17. You remember David's going up against the, the real war for the Philistines, the, the real warfare, and David says that I know that this battle, say you put the two sides against each other, there's no way he's going to make it. But what did he say? He says, I know that the battle is the Lord's, that I don't fight this alone, but that God and his power is on my side. And that's why the second reading is so, so fantastic, right? Jesus comes in and what he's doing, he finds a demon-possessed man. He starts to cast out the, the demons and the demon-possessed man and they say, look at this guy, he's satanic. And Jesus says, well, that wouldn't make any sense at all, that if I was satanic, then I'd be working against Satan. Rather, recognize me for who I am, right? That I've uh, actually bound the strong man. I've bound the power of darkness in the lives of my people so that they might be free and that they might triumph over, over the obstacles in their lives. So I bring this into to our world. You think about the implications of something like this with um, the rise of, of anxiety among um, in a culture like ours, especially young, young people. Um, you see anxiety, you just look at the notes, say skyrocketing again. What's going on here? Say anxiety is a response to, to being threatened. That's what anxiety is, right? You're, you feel it in your body, say, I'm feeling a threat. If, if you make that pivot, you say you're talking about spiritual warfare, this is a little bit distant from the world that I live in, say, not, may it not be. People's anxiety going up, why is it going up? Because they feel threatened, from voices in the culture. How wonderful would it be then if it, the biblical narrative 
right? We enter into it and we trust it. Say, oh, there's a very serious battle going on. Let's call it for what it is. When you read The Economist and when you read The Plain Deal, let's call it for what it is. There's a power of darkness that clouds in uh, over the people of God when we turn our back on him. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can have the confidence that he has bound the strong man. He has bound the powers of darkness and that we can hand that over every single day. Say, God, I'm wrestling today against my selfishness. I'm wrestling against this. I've got all these irritations in my life. I'm battling against the powers of darkness. But Lord, I hand that over to you. Not that I'm inactive, but I stay faithful. But rather that this battle is yours and that your power would break in. You say, wouldn't that make a difference for the people of God? Now, one little side note on this. Um, think of the role of the church in something like this, too. I know we've all had examples of dysfunctional churches in the news. You say, wouldn't it be great if there's a healthy church doing what the Lord and the Scripture says, that there's a place where we actually right, exalt the Savior and humble the sinner and that we love each other well and say we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, knowing that we're in a battle, but that he's going to fight for us, that he's our warrior, he's bound to the strong man. What a refuge the church would be. Say, and that is our hope and our prayer here, that it's a place of love and a family where God goes to work for us. So the moves that we've made so far are very simply, God appears among the people as a warrior in a chariot. It's, a, it's an image of warfare, reminds us there's a real war going on. It's against the powers of darkness and the things at play that cloud our life. There's a serious spiritual battle that spills over into all of our other areas of life. Secondly, no one can fight constantly except if there's an eternal source who comes through for us. And that's exactly the promise we have when we surrender to Jesus, that my battles are, they're way bigger than I can handle. My, my problems are way, I, I can't extricate myself from the problems that I'm in. That's the great truth of the, there's a, a voice coming in from the outside to rescue us and pull us out and supply us with the power we need to face the day. Now, that's the glorious truth of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we need you. We sing that. We need you. Do we really need him to be our power, to fight our spiritual battles, to prevail in this dark age, and quite frankly, hopefully, to win as many as we can to him? Bold heading number three, and, and lastly, wonderfully. God's appearing as a warrior in the person of Jesus reminds us of the real, the real weapons of the war. See, we've talked a lot about you know, military overtones here. You say, how does the Christian advance the kingdom? How do we, we win this battle? And you think about how Jesus won. Say, maybe a really good place to look this week is Colossians chapter two, where Paul makes the point, he says, when Jesus died on the cross, and here's what he says, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That the Lord Jesus won the real battle, in many ways the only battle, the spiritual battle, uh, by means of his sacrificial death on an instrument of shame. And that as he hung up on that cross and said, all who come to me, you say all of your shame and acknowledging that you can't make it can be offloaded on him, and then God raised him and vindicated him from the dead, saying all those who are in me are victorious. And that truth spills over into the life of the Christian. That when we go out into the world, you say, my weapons aren't um, weapons of warfare, but actually it's the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's the great tool in the arsenal of the Christian, right? That you say, well, actually, uh, I am very weak, and my, my enemy is way bigger. My problems are way bigger than anything I could solve, but the Lord Jesus broke into my life 
He rescued me by trampling my oppressors on the cross. And he, God raised them from the dead. And that all who accept that truth and come to him, they too can be victorious. Say, so maybe you're not a Christian today, but you're in this very complicated world and a lot of people are throwing a lot of solutions to your problem at you. You say, this is one I've not heard. You say, can I invite you to say that this is, in a way, the, the only solution, the profound solution in Jesus to say you're not fighting your battles alone, that the darkness you feel coming in on your life, to say that's exactly what the Bible says uh, is going to happen, but you can offload that onto the cross, acknowledge, say, Lord, I need you. I, I, I'm part of the problem. I need, uh, again, last week, a fresh start. I need somebody to fight my battles for me. I need to be secure in Jesus. I want those, so to speak, those chariots to, to fight for me. Do you surrender to Jesus today? If not, what's holding you back? Would I be so bold as to say maybe it's our pride? You said no to Jesus so many times and the person next to you has tried to tell you about Jesus for 20 years. And maybe deep down in your gut you say, I, I know this is true, but I won't in my pride surrender to the real king. I pray that's not you today. I pray you say, I, this is a messy world and it's a sad world. And I do sense there's a real battle. And I see in Jesus something the world doesn't offer. I pray that this Advent, that you would make that move. And Christian, remember, remember we're in a spiritual battle. That we must advance, and I'll close with a couple thoughts on a few Christian hymns. You remember the old hymns we used to sing? Well, we would sing them here, but some of them have been canceled. You know, like Onward Christian Soldiers. You remember that one? So, well, we can't have this militaristic hymn. And I'm just saying, can you just read the hymn? Because you know what the hymn says is that Christians onward we march as like an army, but then it goes on to say, but we, we march under the cross. We, the, the banner of the Christian march is an instrument of shame. It, it's an instrument of death and dying to self. Likewise, a, a hymn we sing more regularly here, O Church Arise by the Gettys. You ever catch that line? The church is, you ready? An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. It's exactly right. It's a militaristic overtone, reminding the people of God actually the way that we advance the kingdom is by acknowledging and obeying the Lord Jesus who gave his life for us and shedding apart that love so that we might win as many as possible to follow him because we've experienced the Lord fighting for us. Friends, again, I know I said I closed the hymns. Actually, I'm gonna close with a couple verses. Uh, best summary of all I've tried to be saying comes from actually Peter. Acts chapter 10, think about it this week. Acts chapter 10, church is just starting. Verse 42, Peter says this. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And we talked about the judgment against the Amalekites. How much more is that? Say, Jesus will judge every one of us. He's been appointed by God to be the judge, but then this. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Say, God is serious business. He's not an abstraction. He's not a philosophical category. But he comes in at Christmas and the person of Jesus says, look, all of us are going to face the judgment of, of Jesus, but in, in, right, as we gather around, we think about it, say, oh, we can come and experience his forgiveness, be reconciled to him and have him fight our battles. Say, what a glorious truth for the church. 
Friends, may we rest in that. The Lord will fight the battle, the real battle that we need as we yield to him, knowing that our weapon is his sacrificial death on the cross and the love that's shed abroad in our hearts. May that be the case. I'll invite the team back up. Father, thank you for appearing among your people, both in the Hebrew Bible, say, okay, you're, you're knowable. You, you, in your grace, have condescended. But then for all time in Jesus, that just as last week he appeared as a refiner's fire, as if to say, yeah, we can do outside rituals as a church, like baptism, but Jesus, you're the one who changes our hearts, that you baptize with fire. You convict us and convert us and remind us and mature us. And then this week, Lord, to say some of us are very worn down, that we we're very tired. We, we've been in a state of warfare a long time. As you could say, the body's been in fight or flight a long time. We have opponents here and opponents there, and we don't know the solution. We just got to usher in the next, you know, kind of idea, the next person. Help us to see you're appearing as a warrior, what that means. Yeah, there's a serious battle. This is why darkness is all around us. We're just afraid to talk about it. We think we'll be laughing. Say, darkness is all around. In every single paper, every single day, the darkness coming in on the people who've turned their back on you. So help us to see that there is a better way, that you fight for your people. You triumphed over the powers of darkness. And Lord, help us to apprehend the great truth that as we obey you, say not to give in, but as we obey you and we march onward as an army, that our battle cry is love as displayed in you. Lord, may we be those with a mature faith. May many be one. May many be one. All your elect be one for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.